I asked Mohammed to uh, join in the first discussion uh, and, and then uh, after the break to take over uh, in, in uh, some analysis where he would be front and center. So it turns out uh, you're, you've been uh, front and center uh, earlier in the evening than, than had been anticipated. Uh, and we've been exchanging a fair amount of email uh, suggesting different topics. Uh, Mohammed writes a lot of uh, op-ed pieces uh, in different newspapers. And uh, he sent me some of his recent ones. One that caught my eye was a, a comparison between the way Israel and Venezuela have been depicted in the media. Uh, one of the uh, realities that uh, we face in the country is that one of the major media conglomerates in Canada, Can West Global, Global Television Network and uh, many of the newspapers, and many of these newspapers like in Calgary, or Edmonton or Vancouver pretty well have monopolies. Uh, there, there isn't a, a great range of newspapers. Uh, and uh, the people who run that company, who own that company, are very dedicated to, to Israel, so to supporting Israel, and uh, definitely use their newspapers to advance and promote, essentially, Israel foreign policy. And, uh, it's really impossible to work at CanWest Global if you take a pro-Palestinian stance. Uh, so that's just uh, that's just a reality that uh, is uh, to be dealt with. I, I was and I I was wanting Tony to be there. Uh, one of the things Tony has worked on is if we can go to the document camera, uh, this dossier on Palestine, and it's uh, very rich. Uh, presentation of information on uh, Palestine, Israel. Uh, it's in the pre-wall days, but uh, many good maps. Uh, so I've got these available for five dollars if, if you're interested in that. Uh, so we had decided that we would attempt a, a discussion focusing on the media perhaps using the Venezuela-Israel uh, comparison, how these two countries, uh, one with uh, a socialist regime uh, led by Hugo Chavez, uh, who's a good friend of Fidel Castro, and uh, you know how is it depicted in the media, and how is Israel depicted in the media. But this would be a case study uh, of a larger set of patterns um, and what Mohammed might uh, actually um, identify as prejudices in some of the media, some of the com commercial media, uh, prejudices which uh, disadvantage his constituency, the constituency represented by the Canadian Islamic Congress. And of course, the Canadian Islamic Congress is focused on the situation faced by Muslim people, Islamic people in Canada. But of course, under the present conditions, you can't disassociate this from the global, the global realities and uh, the fact that the 1.2 billion Muslim people in the world are, are being pressed into a kind of 
war of civilizations, it would seem, that the war on terror, uh, try as some apologists for it might, it has beneath it, nevertheless, a, a concept, uh, going back to Samuel Huntington's work, Clash of Civilizations, a book that we've discussed, that there is uh, inevitably uh, the world geopolitics will be shaped by these this clash of civilizations. So with that introduction, Mohammed, uh, I invite you to uh, continue with your stunning and always uh, provocative uh, and um, uh, stimulating um, presentation and to basically take it away as you have planned to do and uh, and continue as you see fit from the uh, ideas we've discussed so far. Okay, thank you for the second introduction. Um, I, I want to uh, focus uh, my attention in uh, two uh, main issues. The first one is media in general and uh, what uh, Canadian Muslim did about it. Um, and the second one is actually to talk about, say, specific uh, case of, say, uh, Canadian media does not pay attention much to Latin American countries. Uh, and uh, and uh, let me start with the first one. Um, uh, Canadians don't uh, read newspapers. Uh, actually, if you think highest uh, percentage of readership of a newspaper, can anybody guess? I just want to make sure that everybody is awake. Uh, and and uh, can somebody shout actually where the highest newspaper percentage of readership? What country? He can't hear you. You got to press. He can't hear you. The United States. <laughs> it's actually the opposite, actually. Uh, the, the highest uh, percentage of newspaper readership is uh, Scandinavian countries. It's around 60%. Um, and the uh, United States is about 20%. Uh, Canada is probably close to, there is no formal statistics, but uh, it is close to the United States, so it's 20%. So people actually get their, uh, their information, general information about current affairs from TV. You know, sound bites, uh, CNN, uh, one sentence, uh, pictures, and that's all. Uh, so this means that even newspaper is not getting uh, uh, the, the audience that it deserves. Uh, now, when you look also at the uh, Canadian newspaper uh, media funded the high concentration of ownership. Uh, Tony, in his intro, mentioned that uh, uh, the Asper family owns more than 50% of the newspaper in this country. Uh, one of them is, of course, the National Post. Um, and uh, although the people of Toronto have a choice of reading National Post, Globe and Mail, or Toronto Star, uh, other uh, main cities, they have no choice except uh, a Can West Asper own newspaper. So, so this is actually quite uh, quite a, a problem because uh, if you have different ownership, you can actually have different flavors. Uh, and the liberals, uh, when they were in power, they tried actually to uh, come up with a gentleman agreement that this is, should be this monopoly should be broken down. 
uh, and they did shy away from doing it. So we have stuck with it for a long, long time. And the leaders should really be aware of it, uh, that, that the owner, concentration of ownership is really biasing news, especially uh, editorials. And in many cases, the, there is no uh, guidelines to separate the news from the editorials. The editorials actually affect uh, uh, newsworthy uh, coverage, even, even which uh, pictures will go onto the front page of a newspaper. You find that the editorial board is actually having uh, a say on this. Uh, so what we did in 1998, starting 1998, you can actually check if you are really interested in media. Uh, this is, will be a very useful uh, study for you to look at. Starting in 1998, we said we're going to focus only on one issue, which is the language used by the media in describing events related to Islam and Muslims. Only the language, uh, no contents. Uh, so this means that if we find that the usage of the word uh, Muslim terrorist or Islam-inspired terrorism, uh, we find this is a really offending because it, it builds a negative stereotype and it affects our community negatively. So we did a dictionary, if you like, of, of this terminology. These terminology are used by the mainstream media. So we did a category of this. Uh, we start by newspaper, and then we went later into the electronic media, the, the TV. And uh, again, what we did here is to grade newspaper according to uh, the usage of this negative terminology, and we give a weighting factor to the item itself. So, so for example, if the item has a picture uh, or it has a cartoon, it has a, a higher weighting factor uh, then if it doesn't have a picture and doesn't have a cartoon. Uh, also, if it is uh, in the front page or is in page eight or is in last page, uh, if it is in high circulation newspaper. The highest circulation newspaper in the country is the Toronto Star, around 300,000 copies uh, per week. And uh, uh, the second one is Globe and Mail and National Post is, 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 uh, is, is there. So, Based on, on these issues, if it's a weekend edition, front page, if it, there is a picture on it, you know, we give a weighting factor and we give points to the coverage within uh, a certain time period, say six months. And uh, in, since 1998, uh, we did cover the largest newspaper in the country, Toronto Star, Global Mail, and we added news, uh, National Post once it was available. Uh, also, uh, Montreal Gazette, La Presse in Montreal, and Ottawa Citizen. And now and then we add a regional small newspaper like Winnipeg Free Press or London Free Press, or uh, also uh, tabloid like the, uh, the Toronto Sun. And uh, for the last, I think, seven years now, the National Post is the worst in terms of anti-Islam offending usage of that language by far. So this means there is a big gap between National Post and the second newspaper. Usually it is um, a Ken West newspaper. And in, in, in parallel with this, we did, we did meet with most of the editorial boards of major newspapers to explain to them that you can actually cover the same uh, news story 
using different languages. You know, for example, you can say that uh, this terrorist attack uh, uh, being uh, committed by this group, and you mentioned the group, and uh, the group actually subscribed to Islamic ideology, or they use Islam to propagate their political agenda, including terrorism attacks. So, so this means that you don't, you're not building this correlation between uh, Islam as a religion and Muslims at large and uh, your story. In, in, in most cases, uh, we find that uh, journalists are sympathetic with our point of view, and they said, well, we can't really uh, promise perfection because uh, you know the nature of the newsroom and the publication deadlines, etc. but uh, we will try. And this was really su sufficient for us, except one newspaper, which is the National Post. Uh, they refused even to listen to our argument, saying that, you know, it's your problem, guys, that Muslims are terrorists. Not all uh, Muslims are terrorists, but all terrorists are Muslims. And so they didn't really try to even consider using a different language. And, and uh, basically, we use the National Post as a yardstick to uh, indicate that a certain newspaper is, say, 50% from the National Post or 70% or 10%. So the, always the worst case is the National Post. And we're saying to the, to the industry that newspaper in this country should not be like the National Post. So we use it as a, you know, a worst example case uh, in our communication with the profession because we we, we consider them as they are professionals, and they try to strive for excellence, they, they achieve excellence, and they should really be careful in the language they used. I mean, it's a really quality control. Uh, if the editor is really conscious about the language used, this means that everybody else as the reporters and, and even in the uh, editorials or op-ed pages, uh, you can see the, the effect. So from 1998 to the year 2000, we find that, that our effort really did help in the less usage of this language. But we got a, a big, huge jump in the, after the 9-11 events and the year after that. And then back again, it settled. And uh, uh, after 9-11, we used to notice some peaks. So this, for example, if the if the U.S. bombs Iraq or bombs Afghanistan, we find that there is an increase of anti-Islam usage of terminology, and then it goes back to normal again. And we still publish this report every year. It's a huge amount of effort. And uh, we add it to this uh, as electronic media. This, we automate the process. This means that we got a, like a video card, which you can hook. Uh, your cable television into the video card in your PC, and with the caption that you see at the bottom of the screen uh, in, in most of the news uh, broadcast, we use that in order to automatically uh, just have video clips uh, from these uh, newscasts, uh, and then we uh, store it in the computer, and then later on we analyze it for the usage of anti-Islam uh, terminology. Now, I want to, uh, uh, the related topic 
this is actually, the, uh, for example, if you look at uh, the uh, media coverage of Israel, Israel is a small country, it's a five million uh, people, uh, and you find that there is a lot of coverage uh, compared to the size, for example, of a five million uh, people nation. Uh, and most of the coverage is positive coverage. So this means that if Israel, the, the government of Israel wants to spend uh, PR type money in order to get this image, a positive image in the Canadian media or Western media in general, it has to spend a lot of money in order to get that image. So uh, uh, you probably noticed in the last four, five, six months, the health of uh, Aaron Sharon, uh, the Prime Minister of Israel, got a lot of publicity. His heating habit is overweight. Uh, and then finally, when he went to uh, coma and to the hospital. Uh, you don't get that in any other country of that size. And, and uh, uh, in, in contrast with this, you find that the Canadian media uh, uh, very rare that it, it actually cover uh, any Latin American uh, country. Remember, Latin American countries is really a backyard of Canada, okay? Uh, the total population of Latin American countries is about uh, half a billion people. So this is a huge market. Uh, and Canada should have a strong presence in Latin American countries. Uh, from uh, Cuba to uh, Brazil to Argentina, etc., etc., uh, and, and unfortunately, Canadians don't get that coverage from their media, uh, even when there is a very important events which uh, uh, should call for Canadian media coverage. You find that the Canadian media don't cover this, and I mentioned, you know, Venezuela, for example, you know, Venezuela. Uh, compared to Israel is five times the size, you know, 25 million people. Uh, it's part of, of South America. Uh, when uh, uh, Higo uh, Javez uh, been elected uh, with a free election, uh, and uh, because of his social tendency, uh, the Americans uh, blacklisted Venezuela uh, because they see it, it's a threat if, if his ideology and, and saying no to American imperialism, uh, this is actually might catch on on the rest of Latin America. But, but the irony is that the struggle of Latin America against American imperialism should, should actually resonate with Canadians because we suffer from the big uh, guy south of the border. You know, uh, the software lumber uh, uh, case, uh, the, the bullying tactics of the U.S. Uh, remember when Harper, even the first day after his election, he was getting lectures from the American ambassadors to tell him what to do. So, so, so this is should should really connect Canadians with with uh, the the Spanish-speaking and the uh, Portuguese-speaking Latin America in in a more. Uh, political and culture and, uh, and other ways than, than it exists. And the uh, media actually should play a role. So uh, Canadians should really write to their editors uh, and tell them, you know, why you are not covering Latin American news? Uh, uh, Americans have the reason to hate, you know, the, the Venezuelan uh, president.
but he's democratically elected. Uh, he's very popular. He has a grass uh, root support. Uh, he does not oppress his people. Uh, he's not a communist. Uh, the, actually, the, the media in Venezuela now is still owned by the original owners, uh, which is more of the, uh, on the opposition side. But uh, when you look at Javier's uh, 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 agenda, you find that he is pro-people. You know, he wants to bring this 25 million people, which is below the poverty line, most of them anyway, to have a higher standard of living. He wants to use his oil revenue to bring uh, Venezuelan people to uh, middle class uh, standard of living. Uh, he is outspoken against uh, American uh, war against Afghanistan, against Iraq, against exploitation of the uh, natural resources of uh, developing countries. And of course, Americans don't like that. But there is no reason for Canadians not to like this, uh, because we are not a superpower. We don't have a big uh, schemes to take over the world and, and, and building an empire. We are not. So, I mean, it's outrageous when you see American officials talking about Venezuelan president. You know, I, I have an, an op-ed article which is published in, in the Canadian Islamic Congress website and been published by many newspapers. Uh, and the website is Canadian Islamic Congress, one word, dot com. Can so I, can I just intervene, Mohammed? Yes. Uh, I've got the website up. So if we can click to the website and we can show the website. There we are. So Canadian Islamic Congress. And I notice uh, there's the article you're referring to. Continue. Is the website up, please? We lost it. Yes. Whoa. Okay, here's the uh, Israel and Dr. Mohammed Al Masri's article. Uh, and here's uh, Muslim marriage, ethical and moral foundations of marriage. So the whole issue of uh, uh, the relationship of Sharia law to Ontario law. You'll find that in here. And you'll also find uh, my article on national globalism. I'm proud it was uh, published by the Canadian Islamic Congress, as well as the Edmonton Journal. Um, so, uh, and I, I know, uh, Mohammed, you're quite good with emails. If, uh, if you, yeah, there is a question here. Well, uh, my, my, my feeling is that, uh, uh, you know, studying the Canadian media for the last uh, seven, eight years, uh, I, fi I find that the Canadian media is, is uh, in at large the right-wing media. I mean, even, even some uh, supposed to be uh, left uh, 
uh, on the left, like the Toronto Star is not really. Uh, and if you look at the Canadian media behavior in the last election, since we're talking about election, you find that they actually, they were promoting the conservative agenda, uh, 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 directly or indirectly, uh, either by smearing the liberals and the NDP or, or, uh, or actually directly saying that uh, Harper has a, a script and, and he's sticking to it and he's sticking to principle. And they did the same thing in, uh, in the Z uh, 04 elections. Uh, and uh, my feeling is that the Canadians actually more uh, on the left of their media. Uh, and, and, and this is actually bring us to the question of alternative media. I mean, there is many young people here. They should really think with the high technology and right now, I mean, you don't need a press to, to distribute your ideas, you know, and if you, are, if you have a successful uh, uh, e-newspaper, uh, uh, you can find many, many readers, and you can also get revenue in terms of uh, uh, online video games and, and other advertising revenues. So, so here we, ha we are in the crossroad of of going from the traditional media, which is TV and newspaper, to alternative media and, and the internet. I'm not sure if I did I, uh, answer the question or there is a more specific points I should address. Yeah, for a reason, stop. No, I think you had uh, adequately, adequately answered. Anything going on? Thank you. Anything going on? Thank you. Hello, Dr. Uh, Elmasri again. I'm wondering if we can uh, shift a little bit. I'm, I am interested in more about the, uh, the extent of Canadian policy, uh, policy regarding the Islamic occupation, uh, sorry, the, the um, Israeli-occupied territory. Prior to this cartoon coming out, because I don't, um, I guess I want to get away from that a little bit and talk about the, uh, uh, the shift in, in, in stance from the Canadian foreign policy, or of the Canadian foreign policy regarding um, Palestine and Israel relations prior to, prior to the cartoon, just sort of what's, um, what's been happening from your standpoint? Well, uh, the, um, the, the Canadian foreign policy related to the conflict between Israelis and, and Palestinians was trying to show some balance, trying to show some balance. Uh, by uh, saying that uh, we accept uh, United Nations resolutions uh, that uh, the territories which has been occupied by Israel since 1967, this is an illegal occupation and uh, a just solution should be based on negotiation between the two parties in order to achieve withdrawal of, from the 1967 um, uh, occupation of, of uh, Palestinian territories. The unfortunate part, Canada does not have the, uh, the way that the United States have in terms of uh, regional power. Uh, the United States have a good uh, relationship with, uh, with Israel and, and it, it can have a good relationship also with Jordan, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, Egypt, the main players in the Middle East. 
So, so the only brokerage uh, on the political scene is the United States. Canada have a secondary role. And uh, Axworthy, when he was a foreign minister in the liberal government, uh, he's a man of intellect. He's an academic, PhD in political science. He understands what he's talking about. Uh, he tried to propagate what is called soft power, that Canada, although doesn't have the muscles, economical muscles, and definitely we don't have the, the military muscles of the United States, that we should be able to uh, sell uh, more moderate foreign policy and we can affect the results. Of course, with a, with a green light from the United States, because we cannot go into the Middle East and, and have our own independent line uh, 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 from the United States. We have to get the green light from the United States. And, and uh, uh, recently, for example, in the Middle East, when uh, uh, Bush tried to use uh, the, the democratic uh, reforms as a line to hide behind it and in order to propagate his war on, on and terror. Uh, Canada kept quiet, didn't really support him in this, but said that we should really have our own institutions, but this did not actually materialize. Can I interfere? Uh, inter just one, one yeah. point. That the, uh, Canada, at the end of the liberal government, the last uh, liberal government, it changed the <laughs> traditional uh, abstention uh, in terms of uh, voting in the General Assembly uh, when there is a resolution. Every year there is some resolution about the aggression of Israelis against Palestinians. Uh, doesn't have really a legal meaning, but it's a moral meaning that, that, uh, that Palestinians should be free and, and Israel is really the aggressor. In, in that conflict, and uh, the, uh, the resolution is voted, and usually only two countries which vote against it is the United States and Israel. Okay, and unfortunately, Canada joined them uh, in the last year or so. Yeah, I'd, I'd just like to uh, clarify some of these terms we're using. For instance, occupied territory, or the West Bank. Uh, and the assumption being that we all know what this is, but perhaps uh, we don't know in specific detail. So if I could go to the document camera, to this dossier on Palestine. And uh, so pa there was on the map a place called Palestine. This was brought under the auspices of the British Empire after World War I. And essentially, much of the former Ottoman Empire was divided between France and Britain. And uh, par part of this uh, move of, of Britain to formalize its control of this area, and of course, it's a very sensitive area because the Suez Canal, which is the route to India, is nearby. In 1917, in the Balfour Declaration, there was a British declaration that uh, this area would be a Jewish homeland. Not a state, but a Jewish homeland. So then after uh, the Second World War, which involved the horrendous uh, persecution uh, and genocide of Jews in their millions, there was such a sense of um, guilt and a need for atonement that the creation of the state of Israel 
uh, was um, an outgrowth of this. But in the in the uh, UN resolution, there was a con concept that there would be two states in this area. There would be Jewish state, Israel, and a Palestinian state. We have to be very careful that we remember there's Christian Palestinians, uh, and of course, uh, you know, there's the larger Jewish population, there's the citizens of Israel. Uh, we, we've got to be very careful in the language we use. The partition of Palestine, 1947 to 1949, the UN partition plan of 29 November arbitrarily divides Palestine into a Zionist and Arab state. The first Arab-Israeli war enables the victorious state of Israel to enlarge its territory. So there is the West Bank. The West Bank is on the west bank of the Jordan River. And from the early days of Israel, there was the uh, conception that uh, the West Bank would become the territory of the Palestinians the basis for a future Palestinian state. And in a series of uh, military expansions on the part of Israel, uh, the West Bank was occupied. And uh, the Israeli state is very careful to keep to this conception of the West Bank as being occupied territory because all of the, you know, most of the inhabitants of that area are Palestinian. If they became, if that became part of Israel, then they would become Palestinian citizens. And so there, the, the, there's a great issue with the fact that the Palestinians are numerous, they're growing more quickly, and uh, there are Israelis who are Palestinians, but they're a small minority. But if they were to incorporate this area, and move it outside of a concept of an occupied territory, they would have to deal with so many new Israeli citizens who are not Jewish, who are in fact Palestinian and, and, and many of them are, are Muslim. So here's a map, the Zionist colonies in the West Bank. Uh, here's a map of, uh, here's this beautiful Israel colony settlements. So there have been uh, very zealous Zionists who have a vision of themselves as a chosen people, have themselves have a vision of themselves as answering a, a divine calling, a, a, a will of God to move into into uh, an area and make it Greater Israel. Uh, and so, uh, and it wouldn't be limited to the to the West Bank. But these these are the Jewish settlements in the West Bank. So Edward Said, for instance, and I, I think that's one of the names I'd like to include as one of our globalization uh, uh, thinkers, uh, Edward Said. I mean, he was quite outspoken, Edward Said, in uh, basically identifying the different peace plans and proposals as creating Palestinian Bantustans. Essentially a situation where there will be little enclaves of, of territory controlled by a Palestinian state, but they will be like reserves. They will be broken up and they'll be like Bantustans in South Africa, Indian reserves or reservations in Canada and the United States.
Uh, and he talked about the, this quite openly. So when we talk about the occupied territory, and of course then this is where the, the wall is being built through this territory, and it, it yet more fragments the, the chance of the Palestinians have any, having any uh, reasonable amount of contiguous territory to create a, some kind of a, a Palestinian state. Said himself started to talk about the idea that the, the ultimate solution or the only real approach that he could see for the future is that as Israel develop as a, as a dual, as a, as a dual state, that Israel and Palestine be within a single sovereign country with some kind of uh, institutions for the two major communities within the same state. And that, of course, is always difficult. We have the same issue with respect to Quebec. But uh, surely we see that partition, the partition of territory is always uh, very problematic. In the case of the partition of India into India and Pakistan, maybe a million people were killed. Uh, when you put a line on a territory and you say this kind of people must go to that side of the line, this other kind of people must go to the other side of the line, you're, you're dealing with uh, un unhappy outcomes. And of course the, the wall makes this sort of a fait accompli. And the wall can be seen as a kind of apartheid approach. And uh, this was an interesting debate that I think there is a, a difference between Alexa McDonough who, whose criticism of the wall is essentially that it takes in too much Palestinian territory, but is not critical of the overall concept, whereas uh, I think Tony Seed would have been critical of the overall concept of the wall. Um, so that's a, a use of maps, this audio, this uh, visual aid, uh, just to clarify what, what the things you're talking about, Mohammed or give a visual okay, presentation can, can on the I, map. Can I uh, entertain some questions or comments uh, from the students now? I think this would be the time to uh, get your last surge of energy here. We're pretty close to uh, the end of the night and uh, maybe it's time for, yeah, let's, some, somebody who's, who hasn't come in yet, D Derek. There you go. Hi. I'm just wondering if we have any further questions, if there's a website or an email address we can have to get a hold of you for further information. Well, uh, my um, email address is NP, like N for Nancy, P for Peter, which is short for National President, at Canadian Islamic Congress, one word, dot com. So NP at Canadian Islamic Congress, dot com. But if you, if you go to the website that uh, uh, been on the screen there, you can actually find most of the, the op-ed pieces. There is a Google machine there, which you can actually put some keywords and you can find uh, many things. But I'll be glad to answer uh, email questions. Yeah, James. That's it. Thank you. Um, just in the context of, of losing Halifax and then uh, uh, 
some of the uh, Muhammad's comments about the press. I've got an interesting bit here. Uh, we have uh, statements on the 27th of January coming from uh, Prime Minister-elect Harper, where we all heard him telling that the uh, uh, he doesn't take orders from the ambassador of the United States, it's the Canadian people that he gets his mandate from. <clears throat> that all the publicity. That appeared in every paper. But what didn't appear is very interesting. There's a, I've got a paper here from July 26th or January 26th, the National Post, where when Mr. Harper was speaking with Mr. Bush in the 20-minute conversation, and I'll, I'll quote from it, I'll read from it here. <clears throat> it says, uh, in this context of the NORAD Treaty, which the acronym stood for the North American Air Defense Treaty, it says, the NORAD Treaty was set to expire in May and is usually renewed every five years, but senior government officials in Canada and the United States say the treaty will be renewed in perpetuity this time. So in other words, it won't be up for renewal. It'll be there in perpetuity or forever. Uh, it says a signing ceremony could be held any time before that, as early as March or April. That's the next month or two. It also says that the new NORAD agreement will be an expanded version of the current Joint Continental Aerospace Command Partnership that dates back almost half a century. For the first time, it will expand NORAD's jurisdiction to the high seas, allowing the navies of both countries to share time surveillance in their territorial waters on the Atlantic and Pacific coasts. Uh, you know, the, the very hidden away subtext to his... Uh, very public statements seems to make a moot point about his, his question about the Arctic coast in the context of the, the new perpetual NORAD agreement. And I think in context of what's been happening in Latin America with Evo Morales, the uh, new, new president of Bolivia, with Chavez in Venezuela, with Lula in Brazil, with uh, Bethele in, in Chile now, that there's really a... a you know, we don't want to become uh, just another gringo in the north here, I don't think. I think we'd, we'd be uh, better keep a close eye on the situation and, uh, you know, look for some other kind of alliances uh, with our Spanish-speaking uh, compadres in the south. That's my comment. Thank you. Well, uh, I think uh, you brought a very important uh, point, and, and my feeling is that Canada has a role and can play a role in, in the development of Latin America because we are not a superpower, uh, but we are Americans in a sense that uh, we live in North America, and, and, and the word American is actually being hijacked by U.S. American is just person who live in North or, or Central or South America. And, and uh, I mean, it's outrageous that the way the U.S. is treating uh, uh, democratically elected uh, leaders like Chavez. You probably uh, hear the Rumsfeld the other days uh, uh, comparing Chavez with uh, Adolf Hitler. Or for God's sake, I mean, what, what is this stupid comparison from a stupid man like him? You know? I mean, uh, he's saying that... Uh, uh, Javez has oil, uh, and, and uh, uh, basically he can, he can cause problems for the United States. 
I mean, this is a very tiny country with no power whatsoever in terms of economy or, or, uh, or even military, of course. You know, but, but Chavez broke the mold uh, and, and the tribe. For example, he went and got some arms. When he bought the arms, he didn't buy it from the United States. He bought it from Spain. And, and, and the more he actually speak and for his people and try to uh, elevate the standard of living in Venezuela, the, the more the, the Bush administration don't like him. Uh, so, so, so where Canada stands, we are silent on it. And as I said, the media is doing a lousy job uh, of uh, actually informing Canadians that these Latin Americans share uh, our problem that that the, we, we have to deal with the uh, U.S. as a bully in, in the globalization. I'm going to try to uh, draw a few things, uh, draw a few strands together uh, that we've been bringing up over the course of the night, and you might have a, a concluding thought or two. I'm going to put on the document camera uh, a picture of North America as it was understood to be as it was uh, the geopolitics of North America as of the end of the 1700s. And you'll see a small jurisdiction called Upper Canada, a small jurisdiction called Lower Canada. Uh, this is the basis of uh, Ontario and Quebec. The vast majority of the territory held by the Hudson's Bay Company, the territory where we're in now, referred to as Indian country, a little bit of Russian presence uh, in what's now called Alaska. So this was the period where the United States did try to annex Canada. There was a war fought in North America, the War of 1812, with the object of trying to annex Canada. There was a, uh, a declaration made by the United States, uh, the Monroe Doctrine by President James Monroe, directed primarily at Latin America, essentially saying no European power will be accepted as a legitimate imperial power in the Western Hemisphere. The exception, of course, was British North America. The United States could make this stand vis-a-vis -vis other empires, but the British Empire was too strong. So that's how come there is a Canada. That's how come the northern part of northern North America was kept from U.S. annexation. It was discussed again and again. There were different political initiatives. Now, I, when, when Tony C. talks about annexation being the agenda, I don't think this is rhetoric. I don't think this is uh, simply uh, using uh, sort of a flowery extreme language. Uh, there is water issue. I mean, the United States is running out of access to fresh water. There are big population centers in places like Phoenix. They're, they're presently getting their water out of aquifers. California is overpopulated for the water there. There's nowhere to go for the water except the northern flowing rivers. And Canada is basically defined by the northern flowing rivers. That's what the Hudson's Bay Company, uh, that's how the territory was defined, all the rivers flowing into, into Hudson's Bay, into the Arctic watershed. So the concept that there, is, there may be a, an agenda of actual annexation, I don't think is, is too extreme. Now, Mohammed, you talked about this police state developing, a police state, and you, of course, feel it. Uh, your constituency are the people who are going to be on this no-fly list. It's your constituency 
who are going to be the overwhelming number of people in the, in the no passport list. And maybe others in Canada think, well, my name doesn't sound like Al-Masri. I don't have a name like Mohammed. Maybe this is something that doesn't involve us. And I think that's a, a very false kind of uh, 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 position to get into. So this <clears throat> police state reality that is creeping into our society and one civil liberty, one thing after the next that we've taken for granted is our rights as citizens is, is, being, is disappearing. And uh, so I'm, I'm looking at a publication uh, by the uh, Coalition to Oppose the Arms Trade. And uh, the reality is the Bush family, their entry into the power structure, into the, into the rich families of the United States came when Prescott Bush Here's Prescott Bush, the father of George Bush Sr., the grandfather of George Bush Jr. He married into the Walker clan. The two presidents both have the name George Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, the Walker clan were part of this community of bankers who was funneling money to the Nazi regime. Uh, we talked about the founding of Israel and the huge and horrific crimes against humanity that resulted in the founding of uh, uh, that resulted in the founding of Israel and of course one could ask why should it be the Palestinians of all people that have to be the take the consequences for this atonement on the part of Europe for these generations upon generations of, of persecution of Jews I've got up a picture of, uh, of uh, Auschwitz Auschwitz was by and large a private company's work factory to make chemicals which you know, were highly toxic and people died in, by droves making uh, new kinds of fuel and whatnot. IG Farben was closely connected to Standard Oil. That's the Rockefeller conglomerate. The, essentially the, uh, the elites of the United States <coughs> were very much against, that's William Lyon Mackenzie King and that's Franklin Delano Roosevelt, whose approach to government was sort of social democracy, whose approach to government was somewhat like Alexa McDonough, whose approach to government was to say, we're going to use the state to intervene in, in the capitalist economy. We're going to have social security, pensions. We're going to have some social safety nets. We're going to intervene in the economy to break down the boom and bust cycle. They called it the New Deal. And the New Deal was seen as so threatening that there were m many of the m most rich and elite families in the United States were against the New Deal and became very pro-Nazi because Nazis were standing up to communism or even standing up to social democracy. And of course, uh, Auschwitz and the slave labor there, of course, when you have slave labor, you, you oppose trade unions. You undermine trade unions when, when you've got people who you can get to work for free and if they die, you just bring in new people, Slavs, Gypsies, Jews. So uh, this, uh, the fact that this doesn't get focused upon in the media, now it's, you know, what your grandfather is doesn't mean that you are that. And let's say, let's, let's say that up front, just because 
the grandfather of the current president was a Nazi, was involved in funneling money from the United States to, to support the, the Nazi regime. That doesn't mean that George Bush Sr. or Jr. Have necessarily have the same point of view. But if, if we're talking about this drift into a police state type of atmosphere, shouldn't this come up? Shouldn't there be some, some focus on this? Shouldn't, th isn't this a kind of obvious point? Uh, so uh, this whole uh, uh, publication is dedicated to that. You talked about George Bush calling Hugo Chavez uh, the new Hitler, uh, Saddam Hussein as the Hitler. Uh, well, there's, there's uh, Hitler and his business partners. How did the Third Reich develop its, its, its commercial, economic, industrial policies? Uh, let's look at Alan Dulles, who became the founder, uh, founding director of the CIA. George Bush Sr. was a director of the CIA. Prescott Bush and, and Alan Dulles worked closely together before World War II. Let's remember that the United States wouldn't go into World War II until Pearl Harbor was bombed. In other words, what Adolf Hitler was doing was okay. At least it was acceptable to the extent that the U.S. would keep its isolationist position. So just a, a sample of what this uh, uh, text here talks about. is a top Wall Street lawyer with Sullivan and Cromwell, and, and uh, that was the Wall Street firm that funneled this money, Sullivan and Cromwell, to the Nazi regime. Alan Dulles helped leading U.S. fascist millionaires invest in Germany. And by that he means like the Harrimans, um, Rockefeller, IBM did the business accounting for the Holocaust. Uh, the, uh, on and on it goes. Even uh, Joseph Kennedy is reputed to have some of those connections. Uh, that's the father of John F. Kennedy. As the chief U.S. spy in Germany in World War II, Dulles recruited top Nazis into the CIA's post-war crusade against communism. As lawyer for Rockefeller Standard Oil, the Nazi weapons giant IG Farben, and Thyssen Dutch Bank, Dulles helped build Hitler's war machine. With much dirty uh, laundry, Dulles became CIA director and helped Prescott Bush in, uh, cloak, in, cloak, in uh, cloaking scheme up the Union Bank's role in laundering Nazi loot. So this is not, uh, you know, you don't take my word for it. Go to, the, go to Google, uh, check it out yourself. Uh, so, so, so many of these themes, the creeping police state in Canada and the United States and other countries, the, the fact that, uh, uh, you know, when you accuse people of being uh, like, like Hitler, well, let's go into a little history here. Um, so, th so those are uh, thoughts that I've been uh, con building up. Uh, under those kind of conditions, might the, uh, the uh, annexation of Canada be entirely uh, out of the question? Here is uh, the Tories burning down the Parliament of Canada in 1849, seeking annexation to the United States. This is part of our history. And uh, if, if I had more time, I'd, I'd explain the background to that. But do you know that there was a burning down of our parliament buildings with the claim that we should join the United States? The annexation, the urge to annexation can come from within Canada, can come from constituencies within Canada. So uh, we're out of time, Mohammed, uh, uh, but uh, that was a, a run through a lot of information there. Uh, 
Do you have a, a final uh, few thoughts, and we'll, we'll we'll call it a night? Well, I think uh, annexation doesn't have to be also the physical one. I mean, there is many signs which you can see before the annexation can happen. Uh, so the, the the fact that now we are integrated in terms of economy, uh, and then also now we are integrated in terms of security, you know, the no-fly listing and, and, and so on. And also the police state are spilling over from the United States to Canada. And all of these are signs that it doesn't have to be signing now to tomorrow for the annexations. All the, uh, uh, you know, bells and, and whistles are already there. So, so really, if people really love this country, they should really uh, fight against any signs of, of, of this type of annexation from now. They should not really wait for another 10, 20, 50 years from now to find ourselves that uh, uh, we are part of the United States. I love Michael Moore when, when he published a book saying, uh, dude, where is my country? So Canadians should wake up and say, dude, where is my country? <laughs> I think that's a great place to end. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much. And thank you to Halifax. Thanks, Wilma, if you're out there. And uh, we'll see you uh, for the test next week. And then it's reading week. It's the week for reading.